On August 6, 1945, at 8.15 a.m. local time, an American B-29 named the Enola Gay dropped an atomic bomb called Little Boy on the port city of Hiroshima, Japan. It was the first time a nuclear weapon was used in combat. Three days later, on August 9th, a second B-29, called Boxcar, dropped an atomic bomb on Nagasaki, Japan. This was the last time that a nuclear weapon was used in combat. These two bombings killed an estimated 200,000 people, and many survivors would have lasting health problems. Today, on the 75th anniversary of the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima, we want to step back from the way that we typically talk about nuclear weapons issues, in terms of taxpayer cost and megatons and deterrence theory and all the jargon that we so often employ. And remember that nuclear weapons policy is ultimately about people, People like Kathleen Birkinshaw, the daughter of a survivor of the bombing of Hiroshima, who has written an award-winning historical fiction novel about her mother's experience. We spoke with Kathleen last year for the 74th anniversary of the bombing, and want to replay for you our powerful interview with her in just a few minutes. But first, I'm going to read a selection from an article called Hiroshima, written by John Hersey for an August 1946 edition of the New Yorker magazine. This 31,000-word article, while not the first reporting on the aftermath of the explosion, was the first in-depth look at six survivors of the atomic bomb, both in the immediate aftermath and for months afterward. He was able to help readers understand the view from the ground, the toll on human beings, not just on the buildings. He also broke the news that the death toll was significantly higher than the U.S. government had reported, and that radiation poisoning was far more serious than expected. Thank you for tuning in to this special edition of Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm your host, Jeff Wilson, a policy analyst here at the Center. Exactly 15 minutes past 8 in the morning on August 6, 1945, Japanese time, at the moment when the atomic bomb flashed above Hiroshima, Miss Toshiko Sasaki, a clerk at the personnel department in the East Asia Tin Works, had just sat down at her place in the plant office and was turning her head to speak to the girl at the next desk. At the same moment, Dr. Masakazu Fuji was sitting down cross-legged to read the Osaka Azahai on the porch of his private hospital, overhanging one of the seven deltic rivers which divide Hiroshima. Mrs. Hatsuyo Nakamura, a tailor's widow, stood by the window of her kitchen, watching a neighbor tearing down his house because it lay in the path of an air raid defense fire line. Father Wilhelm Kleinsorge, a German priest of the Society of Jesus, reclined in his underwear on a cot on the top floor of his order's three-story mission house, reading a Jesuit magazine, Stimmen der Zeit. Dr. Terafumi Sasaki, a young member of the surgical staff on the city's large, modern Red Cross hospital, walked along one of the hospital corridors with a blood specimen for a Wasserman test in his hand. And the Reverend Mr. Kiyoshi Tanimoto, pastor of the Hiroshima Methodist Church, paused at the door of a rich man's house in Koi, the city's western suburb, and prepared to unload a handcart full of things he had evacuated from town in the fear of a massive B-29 raid, which everyone expected Hiroshima to suffer. 
100,000 people were killed by the atomic bomb, and these six were among the survivors. They still wondered why they lived when so many others died. Each of them counts many small items of chance or volition, a step taken in time, a decision to go indoors, catching one streetcar instead of the next that ultimately spared them. And now, each knows that in the act of survival, he lived a dozen lives and saw more death than he ever thought he would see. At the time, none of them knew anything. On the train on the way into Hiroshima from the country, where he lived with his mother, Dr. Terafumi Sasaki, the Red Cross hospital surgeon, thought over an unpleasant nightmare he had had the night before. His mother's home was in Mukaihara, 30 miles from the city and it took him two hours by train and tram to reach the hospital. He had slept uneasily all night and had wakened an hour earlier than usual, and, feeling sluggish and slightly feverish, had debated whether to go to the hospital at all. His sense of duty finally forced him to go, and he had started out on an earlier train than he took most mornings. The dream had particularly frightened him because it was so closely associated, on the surface at least, with a disturbing actuality. He was only 25 years old and had just completed his training at the Eastern Medical University in Tsingdao, China. He was something of an idealist and was much distressed by the inadequacy of medical facilities in the country town where his mother lived. Quite on his own and without a permit, he had begun visiting a few sick people out there in the evenings, after his eight hours at the hospital and four hours commuting. He had recently learned that the penalty for practicing without a permit was severe. A fellow doctor whom he had asked about it had given him a serious scolding. Nevertheless, he had continued to practice. In his dream, he had been at the bedside of a country patient when police and the doctor he had consulted burst into the room, seized him, dragged him outside, and beat him up cruelly. On the train, he just about decided to give up the work in Mukaihara, since he felt it would be impossible to get a permit because the authorities would hold that it would conflict with his duties at the Red Cross Hospital. At the terminus, he caught a streetcar at once. He later calculated that if he had taken his customary train that morning, and if he had had to wait a few minutes for the streetcar as often happened, he would have been close to the center at the time of the explosion and would surely have perished. He arrived at the hospital at 7.40 and reported to the chief surgeon. A few minutes later, he went to a room on the first floor and drew blood from the arm of a man in order to perform a Wasserman test. The laboratory containing the incubators for the test was on the third floor. With the blood specimen in his left hand, walking in a kind of distraction he had felt all morning, probably because of the dream in his restless night, he started along the main corridor on his way towards the stairs. He was one step beyond an open window when the light of the bomb was reflected, like a gigantic photographic flash, in the corridor. He ducked down on one knee and said to himself, as only a Japanese would, Sasaki, be brave! Just then, the building was about 1,650 yards from the center, the blast ripped through the hospital. The glasses he was wearing flew off his face. The bottle of blood crashed against the wall. His Japanese slippers zipped out from under his feet. But otherwise, thanks to where he stood, he was untouched. Dr. Sasaki shouted the name of the chief surgeon and rushed around to the man's office and found him terribly cut by glass. The hospital was in horrible confusion. Heavy partitions and ceilings had fallen on patients, beds had overturned, windows had blown in and cut people, blood was spattered on the walls and floors, instruments were everywhere, many of the patients were running about screaming, and many more lay dead. 
A colleague working the laboratory to which Dr. Sasaki had been walking was dead. Dr. Sasaki's patient, whom he had just left and who a few moments before had been dreadfully afraid of syphilis, was also dead. Dr. Sasaki found himself the only doctor in the hospital who was actually unhurt. Dr. Sasaki, who believed that the enemy had hit only the building he was in, got bandages and began to bind the wounds of those inside the hospital, while outside, all over Hiroshima, maimed and dying citizens turned their unsteady steps towards the Red Cross Hospital to begin an invasion that would make Dr. Sasaki forget his private nightmare for a long, long time. Of 150 doctors in the city, 65 were already dead, and most of the rest were wounded. Of 1,780 nurses, 1,654 were dead or too badly hurt to work. In the biggest hospital, that of the Red Cross, only six doctors out of 30 were able to function, and only 10 nurses out of more than 200. The sole uninjured doctor at the Red Cross hospital staff was Dr. Sasaki. After the explosion, he hurried to a storeroom to fetch bandages. This room, like everything he had seen as he ran through the hospital, was chaotic. Bottles of medicines thrown off shelves and broken, solves splattered on the walls, instruments strewn everywhere. He grabbed up some bandages and an unbroken bottle of mercurochrome, hurried back to the chief surgeon, and bandaged his cuts. Then, he went out into the corridor and began patching up the wounded patients and the doctors and nurses there. He blundered so without his glasses that he took a pair off the face of a wounded nurse, and although they only approximately compensated for the errors of his vision, they were better than nothing. He was to depend on them for more than a month. Dr. Sasaki worked without method, taking those who were nearest him first, and noticed soon that the corridor seemed to be getting more and more crowded. Mixed in with the abrasions and lacerations, which most people in the hospital had suffered, he began to find dreadful burns. He realized then the casualties were pouring in from outdoors. There were so many that he began to pass up the lightly wounded. He decided that all he could hope to do was to stop people from bleeding to death. Before long, patients lay and crouched on the floors of the wards and laboratories and all the other rooms, and in the corridors and on the stairs, and in the front hall and under the porch and on the stone front steps, and in the driveway, and courtyard, and for blocks each way in the street. Wounded people supported maimed people. Disfigured families leaned together. Many people were vomiting. A tremendous number of schoolgirls, some of those who had been taken from their classrooms to work outdoors, clearing fire lanes, crept into the hospital. In a city of 245,000, nearly 100,000 people had been killed or doomed at one blow. A hundred thousand more were hurt. At least ten thousand of the wounded made their way to the best hospital in town, which was altogether unequal to such a trampling, since it had only six hundred beds and they had all been occupied. The people in the suffocating crowd inside the hospital wept and cried for Dr. Sasaki to hear, Sensei, doctor, and less seriously wounded came and pulled at his sleeve and begged him to come to the aid of the worst wounded. Tugged here and there in his stocking feet, bewildered by the numbers, staggered by so much raw flesh, Dr. Sasaki lost all sense of profession and stopped working as a skillful surgeon and sympathetic man. He became an automaton, mechanically wiping, daubing, winding, wiping, daubing, winding. By nightfall, 
10,000 victims of the explosion had invaded the Red Cross hospital. And Dr. Sasaki, worn out, was moving aimlessly and dully up and down the stinking corridors with wads of bandages and bottles of mercurochrome, still wearing the glasses he had taken from the wounded nurse, binding up the worst cuts as he came to them. Other doctors were putting compresses of saline solution on the worst burns. That was all they could do. After dark, they worked by the light of the city's fires and by candles the ten remaining nurses held for them. Dr. Sasaki had not looked outside the hospital all day, and the scene inside was so terrible and so compelling that it had not occurred to him to ask anyone about what had happened beyond the windows and doors. Ceilings and partitions had fallen, plaster dust, blood, and vomit were everywhere. Patients were dying by the hundreds, but there was nobody to carry away the corpses. Some of the hospital staff distributed biscuits and rice balls, but the charnel house smell was so strong that few were actually hungry. By three o'clock the next morning, after 19 straight hours of his gruesome work, Dr. Sasaki was incapable of dressing another wound. He and some other survivors of the hospital staff got straw mats and went outdoors. Thousands of patients and hundreds of dead were in the yard and on the driveway, and hurried around behind the hospital and lay down in hiding to snatch some sleep. But within an hour, wounded people had found them. A complaining circle formed around them. Doctors! Help us! How can you sleep? Dr. Sasaki got up again and went back to work. Early in the day, he thought for the first time of his mother at their country home in Mukaihara, 30 miles from town. He usually went home every night. He was afraid that she would think that he was dead. Early that day, August 7th, the Japanese radio broadcast for the first time a succinct announcement that very few, if any of the people most concerned with its content, their survivors in Hiroshima, happened to hear. It said, Hiroshima suffered considerable damage as the result of an attack by a few B-29s. It is believed that a new type of bomb was used. The details are being investigated. Nor is it probable that any of the survivors happen to be turned into a shortwave radio broadcast of an extraordinary announcement by the President of the United States, which identified the new bomb as atomic. That bomb had more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. It had more than 2,000 times the blast power of the British Grand Slam, which is the largest bomb ever yet used in the history of warfare. Those victims who were able to worry at all about what had happened thought of it and discussed it in more primitive, childish terms. Gasoline sprinkled from an airplane, maybe. Or some combustible gas. Or a big cluster of incendiaries. Or the work of parachutists. But even if they had known the truth, most of them were too busy or too weary or too badly hurt to care that they were the objects of the first great experiment in the use of atomic power, which, as the voices on the shortwave shouted, no country except the United States, with its industrial know-how, its willingness to throw two billion gold dollars into an important wartime gamble, could possibly have developed. I highly encourage you to read John Hersey's Hiroshima in its entirety, available on the New Yorker's website for free. Now let's go back to Kathleen, who we spoke to last year about her mother's story of surviving the Hiroshima bombing. Here's our episode. As President Barack Obama said in his historic visit to Hiroshima four years ago, On a bright, cloudless morning, death fell from the sky and the world was changed. A flash of light and a wall of fire destroyed a city. In 
demonstrated that mankind possessed the means to destroy itself. For obvious reasons, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings are a tough topic to discuss. Most Americans are taught very little about them, other than it was a necessary evil that helped end the war in the Pacific. Our textbooks largely overlook the discussion about the two bombs that ended up killing between 129,000 and 226,000 people, most of them civilians. People have questioned whether we needed to drop the bombs at all. Some say that pressure from the Soviets, combined with the American buildup of forces to invade the Japanese home islands, would have forced the emperor's surrender. Others say that the bombings were really a show of force to our erstwhile allies, the Soviets, who were already starting to threaten Western interests in Europe and around the world. But at the same time, Allied intelligence suggested that the United States would have lost over a million men invading those islands. Men like my grandfather and countless others who were on troop ships headed towards Honshu felt that the bombings had saved their lives. Now, I don't think that we will ever find a right answer to this dilemma. Wars are terrible, uncertain, and opaque endeavors. Even when fought for good reasons, they defy our ability to fit them into moral guidelines and constraints. But for whatever reason the bombs were dropped, their creation opened a Pandora's box that has threatened the world and every single one of its inhabitants ever since. While the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings remain the only places where nuclear weapons were used in warfare, thousands more have been tested around the world, causing very real impacts on the health and livelihoods of many more thousands. Even so, we talk about these dangerous weapons in a very sanitized way. We talk about them as dollar amounts, or kiloton yields, or like other pieces of high-tech machinery. Not what they really are. Not as the most destructive weapons ever created. But the truth is that the current global nuclear stockpile, some 14,000 nuclear weapons, could end human civilization in under an hour. So today, I want to talk about nukes in a different way, in a human way. I was lucky enough to sit down with Kathleen Birkinshaw, a Japanese-American author of the book The Last Cherry Blossom. Kathleen's mother was a Hubakusha, a survivor of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, and Kathleen has dedicated her life to sharing her mother's story and helping young Americans to understand why this issue is still so important today. Kathleen, thank you so much for being on with us today. I was wondering if you could tell us the story of what happened to your mother on that day of the bombing. Thank you so much for having me, and, and I'm happy to do that. Um, my mother was 12 and a half when the atomic bomb was dropped in Hiroshima, and she had been away in the countryside for a few, for about a month or so, because after the um, fire bombings in Tokyo, her papa sent them out to a house in the country to be safe. But by the time all this rolled around, they were really tired of being there. She missed being with her papa, so they went back home uh, to Hiroshima. And that particular day was a Monday on August 6th, and they were still in school since their school system runs at a different time than ours does here in the U.S. And she wasn't feeling well, so her papa said to her to stay home for that day. And then the next day, she could go with her classmates, who were in the center of town taking down the wooden buildings. Again, because of the massive firebombs and the damage that was done in Tokyo, they hoped to try to prevent that should a firebomb be dropped yeah. on the center of their city. So that put her students in the center of Hiroshima uh, that morning. There was another thing that my mom says was a huge coincidence that 
drastically changed her life. Um, her papa had a newspaper company, and he worked in the center of town of Hiroshima. But every day, he worked at home in the morning, and then he would travel into the center of town to his office. However, that particular day, he was heading to the train station because he had an employee whose son was injured and was in a hospital on the other side of Japan. And that employee didn't have the money to be able to purchase the ticket, so her papa wanted to do that for him. So that put him in the center of town at 8.15 that morning. My mom remembers that she saw one of her friends outside, and her friend was a couple years older, so she wasn't at class. And she went out to see her, and they were talking, and a siren went off, and they looked, and it was just a weather plate. So they knew that that wouldn't be a threat. And then they continued to talk, and my mother remembers hearing a siren and then seeing a large flash of white light and a huge noise. And at the same time, it felt like there was an earthquake, that the earth was like trembling beneath her. And she remembers just grabbing on to her best friend and screaming. The next thing she knows is she's waking up, and she's covered with dirt and wood and debris from the house that they were standing next to. She's no longer close to her friend. She can hear her, but she can't touch her. And she's trying to dig her way through to find her. She can hear her crying. Um, but then the dirt keeps falling on her. My mother got frightened. And she remembers then a little bit later hearing someone calling her name. And it was her stepmother. She told her, if you try to climb out from inside, I'll make, try to make a hole on the outside here, and you might be able to crawl through. But my mom didn't want to leave because she was very afraid to leave her friend. Um, but her stepmother told her, you can help her better once you're out. So my mom said it took quite a long time. And when she finally was able to come through, she remembers looking up and looking at the sky. And it was this weird shade of uh, orange and purple and red and blue. And then she happened to look to the side where her house was. And she realized that her house was no longer there, nor were any of the houses on her street. And she looked to the other side where she knew um, the center of town was in the distance, and all she could see were what looked like cyclones of fire. And she knew that her papa was over there. But she needed to get her friend out, and so she was trying to dig her out when all of a sudden they felt these raindrops, and it was like a black, sticky substance. So someone had yelled, They're burning, they want to burn us more, and they're pouring oil on us. And so her stepmother just picked her up and went running to trying to find some shelter. My mom, then the next thing she remembers is they needed to go look for her papa. She was woke enough to do that. And as they walked through the city, it was very, very difficult because not only um, it was dark, it was to be the middle of the morning, but... The people that were injured were just walking around. My mother said it almost looked like the mummies that are in the movies because they had seen movies like that. And they didn't focus on anything. They just kept going. The, um, the stench was horrible. There were many people crying and burned. And she remembers that she felt something touch her hand and a little voice um, asking for help. And she turned, and it was a toddler, but she couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl because the face and everything was so melted from the blast. And she remembers being so frightened um, at that sight and running into her stepmother. And then later, 
she felt very guilty she couldn't help that little one. They arrived at the uh, train station where her papa was, and he was not there. So they decided to start walking a little bit further to see if they could find him, um, that maybe he was well enough to walk back towards the house. And her stepmother tripped. And when she looked down, she had tripped over my mother's papa. And he was still breathing, but he was unconscious. And so we, they were able to find someone that they knew, and they put together something that was once like a wheelbarrow to put him in. Uh, they felt that they could get him back towards the hospital where it once stood or back to where their house used to be. Somebody could help them. And my mother remembers looking at him and almost not recognizing him, except for the three-piece Western suit that he wore, but his shoes were off and his face was a weird shade of a navy blue. She remembers seeing a wound in his side that looked like it was burning from the inside out. And as they started walking away with him, she kept saying to herself, Papa will be fine, Papa will be fine. And then she saw his hand um, fall off the wagon, and her stepmother screamed, and she realized that Papa had just passed away. And I will never forget her voice when she would tell this story. And every single time, I'm sorry, she would cry as if it was just happening all over again. And her papa was the most important person in her life. And with him gone like that, she just didn't know if she could continue. And she remembers looking at him and just trying to remember him as the person who used to walk her to school every morning and not seeing what he looked like there and wanting to cry so much. But she, it was almost as if, you know, the, the intense heat from the whole blast and everything that happened just kind of dried everything up. And she didn't know if she'd be ever able to feel anything again. Those are the hardest things is interviewing my mom and getting what happened from her to be able to write the book about it and to be able to talk about it. And all her life she had nightmares every beginning of August. And a lot of it was, if it wasn't about her papa, it was about that toddler that um, ended up dying within minutes from that anyway. But uh, those, those memories never, ever left her. So tell us a little bit about your work. What was it that inspired you to start writing this book, The Last Cherry Blossom? What prompted you to want to tell this story? Well, it was actually started uh, the journey by my daughter. She uh, was in seventh grade, so it was about nine years ago. And she came home from school, and she was really upset. And she said, you know, we finished the section on World War II, and as I was getting my books together, I overheard these kids talking about the cool mushroom cloud picture. And she said, can you talk to my class about the people who were under those clouds that day, like Grandma? And I called up my mom to ask her because I never spoke about it in public at all at that point. And my mother never did. She was very private. And in fact, she didn't start telling me the actual stories of what happened until I was in my 30s. Um, I didn't know she was from Hiroshima. She said she was from Tokyo for the first 
nine years of my life. I only found out after she started having these nightmares, and I put together the next year that she was having a nightmare at the same time. That's when she first told me that she was actually from Hiroshima, but she lost her family and her home and friends from the atomic bombing. But she wouldn't tell me anymore because she just couldn't bear to talk about it. And then she said to me, please don't ever tell anyone. So I went through my school years. The book Hiroshima by John Hersey was the first time I really got an inkling of what she must have witnessed. And I remember being horrified and asking her about it. And again, she just said she couldn't talk about it. And then she begged me not to tell a teacher that she was there. But it wasn't until my early 30s, I had gotten very ill. I was in the hospital for over a month. And when I came home, I needed someone to help take care of me. My daughter was four to help with her while my husband worked during the day. And my mom and my dad came. And that's when my mom would tell me stories of her childhood that were happy. And then she slowly gave me pieces of what she went through that day and the aftermath. So when I spoke to her and I asked her, can I speak to my daughter's class? And she said, yes. And that surprised me. I did not expect that. And she said, well, those children are going to be about the same age that I was when the bomb dropped. And they can probably then be late to my story. And then they leave the room and they're all going to be voters someday. Mm -hmm. And they can remember this and know that nuclear weapons should never be used again. And that was really the, the catalyst. And once I started speaking to the class, they invited me the following year for the new seventh graders and other middle schools heard about it. And the teachers started asking if there would be any kind of a book that they could use with their curriculum to show the Pacific side, which was not really covered very much other than the two paragraphs in a textbook. So I started to write and started to work on it. And I remember telling my mom that people wanted to know about a book and she was shocked. She just said, I didn't think anyone would want to hear my story. Um, I think she had felt that she didn't have a voice for such a long time and to know that some people would want to hear what happened um, really surprised her. The bittersweet thing is that she passed away a year before the book came out, but she did know it was going to be published. I showed her the publishing contract and she read one of the drafts of the book, so she had an idea of what was going to be in it. And she was so happy that I could tell a story about her family or about her papa. But really, for me, it was showing her strength of what she went through and then how she continued to push through later on after that. I, I think that your work is so important. Something that I think that is so often been lost in our work and in discussions about nuclear weapons in general is these humanitarian consequences of these weapons that in an instant 80,000 people in Hiroshima could be killed or 40,000 in Nagasaki. How have you found audiences uh, to be receptive to this human perspective about these weapons? They have been very receptive. And, and as you talk about with the talk shows and when they discuss the nuclear weapons policies, my biggest thing, and that's why I wanted to also contact with you as well, is that there is for people to start to understand the numbers and, and the strategies and all of that is important. But for them to really think about and care about it, I think they need to hear what actually happened to people. Because I think we're 74 years out 
people can be desensitized about a lot of things. And my biggest thing was to show the emotional connection because we all have that. No matter what country you live in, what, no matter what religion you are, you all have that human emotion. And I found that when you speak to these middle school students, I also speak to high schoolers, and I've spoken with adults. And when they hear the story, some of them may not have um, known much about it, and they will come up to me and they will say, I totally have changed my mind about nuclear weapons. I thought it might be something that could be used at a time, but now I realize what happens to families and how much the bomb does not, you know, it doesn't discriminate. My mother was a little bit more of an upper-class area. She still lost everything she knew. It didn't matter if you're rich or poor, what your color was, what your race was. Um, and I think for them to be able to come to that after hearing me speak, that to me puts the humanization into it all and not to look at it as they were just an enemy because they were people, they were families. Um, and, and I think a lot of times the misinformation that's out there, uh, it, you know, makes it look like it was a huge army base. And it was at one time, but by then, Japan had been at war since 1931 and they were depleted by a lot of supplies. There were mostly women, children, and older people that were left there. And I think once they start to understand and understand the culture and the mindset of the people at that time and, and the type of propaganda that the government used against their own people, and, and that's why with my book, I purposely started it months before the bomb was dropped, just so I could show that. And, and they can relate to someone's life. My mother was 12 years old. She didn't like homework. She didn't like to clean. And, she, you know, she had some family issues as well that had popped up, and I think Kids have told me that they can still resonate with her story, even though this happened so many years ago. And to me, that just solidifies the need for the emotional information. And, and if we don't have people who are first or second generation Habaksha that are on boards or who are talking about this along with, here's the policy, here's the no first use that we want, here's how many thousands of people could be killed, um, you know, the strength of 15,000 tons of TNT and the amount that we have in our arsenal right now could be 1.2 million tons of TNT. By telling them the emotional piece first and then following up with those facts, I really think that you need the two together because I think numbers and facts after a while just kind of go over people's head. And they can't do that when you start talking about what happened to somebody's family. And they can very well understand that this will happen to yours. And, and to me, that is the impact we need, not just the two paragraphs and a picture of the mushroom clouds, which I hate, because to me it just represents all the people that were killed underneath it, all the family members I lost. I'm sorry. I'm, very, I'm just very passionate about the fact of, of getting that piece out. No, I mean, I, this, is, this is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us. I want to come at this from a slightly different angle now. You've brought out so much good stuff that I want to dig into. One of the other problems that I think that as Americans that, that we face with this issue is that many Americans don't know how to look at the bombings, right? I think in some respects, a lot of Americans think that they were, even though they were terrible and inhumane, they were somehow still morally justified. My own grandfather was with the 1st Marine Division, and he always said that it had saved his life. He was on a troop ship to, to Honshu. George Schultz, who's a leader in our community, who thinks that nuclear weapons are this terrible scourge on modern society, also had a very similar experience and said much the same thing. But when faced with the enormity of what was done to people, like you said, to humans, just like any of us, Americans, Japanese, anyone, 
it's hard for most people to, to be able to square that reality. How do you think we can overcome this bias? How do you think we can overcome the fact that we just look at them as cool mushroom clouds, like those kids said? How can young Americans react to this in a better way? And how have they reacted to this, this incredible story that you've told? I think part of it is the fact that they realize what was going on in the country at that time in Japan. And, and I think there, there's also been more information that had been unearthed. And yes, it did save some American lives, but that wasn't the only reason that it was used. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that's important to understand it, too. But at the same time, I spoke to schools in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And Oak Ridge is where they had Manhattan Project set up that actually did the uh, enrichment of the uranium for the actual bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. And I was a little nervous to go there because I wasn't quite sure how well I'd be received. But, you know, when I spoke to the students, and this, is, this was my full thought, is that when I speak about what happened, it's not to show any blame. And my mother had always said that because she said that war was hellish for both sides. And so when I tell her story, it can exist along with the American side. It does not um, demonize or make anyone less patriotic for the duty that they were doing to their country, that they, you know, this is what they were told to do and this is what they wanted to do. So my story about my mother can still exist with that. And I think sometimes people say, well, you know, Pearl Harbor, so then, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima. I don't understand why we can't realize how awful the bombing of Pearl Harbor was, as well as how awful the atomic bomb was. And I think until we can get enough people talking like that, it may be hard for others to, to really understand that. And I have a great respect for our military. I've had people in my family that fought at that time. And, but I don't think that me speaking about what happened and trying to tell people that it can't happen again, that it's not something we need to do. We can't just keep saying, oh, but it, there's a small amount that we could use. There's no amount that should be used at all. And, and so I find that the students, to me, even in Oak Ridge, they were very compassionate. They, were, they had family members that had worked at the, the plants, but yet they could see the humanity that was being damaged. So now that we know, then we didn't know what would happen. But now that we do, there's no excuse for us to not continue speaking about this, to not keep their stories alive, to not let their voices matter. Because if we start ignoring voices like that, how are we ever going to learn not to treat other people who we think might be our enemies? We need to realize they're not always so different from ourselves. And, and I think that's such, such an important message, especially today. And I think that it can tie in very nicely with learning about what happened when the bombs were dropped and why they shouldn't be used again and who those people were um, and that they were people they were families that were under those clouds and students i find have reacted so wonderful to that and it really touches my heart when someone comes up to me and says you know when the north korea uh, last year when there were these is issues and she said, I overheard some kids talking about we should just nuke them. And I stepped in and I told them about the story of your mother and why we shouldn't use them again. Now that to me is worth so much more than I could have ever hoped to hear from a message. And I know my mother would have loved to hear that in her lifetime. That's incredible. So now let's look sort of to this contemporary moment here for a second. 
We're now in this moment in this administration where the U.S. is talking about building this new generation of smaller and more usable nuclear weapons, which is really disturbing to to me and to yourself and to so many people. But at the same time, there's been a struggle to get people to realize just what that means. Why should young Americans and young voters be caring about this right now, this crazy idea of more usable nuclear weapons? Well, first of all, there's no such thing as a more usable nuclear weapon, in my mind, anyway. I think they need to know that by just letting something like that exist, that opens up the door that it can be dropped on your home, on your neighborhood, on your family, and trying to picture losing everything you knew in an instant, it would be gone. And I think the more that they understand the reality that's behind it, they'll realize that it's a misnomer to say a little damaging bomb or not enough uh, of a damage bomb. I, I never understood that because to me, any kind of damage, any kind of horrific damage that you can bring from an atomic weapon, it's not small. It's not small to my mom when she lost all of her family. It wasn't small to her then when she lost her best friend. It wasn't small to the parents who lost their children at that time. So to me, there is no such thing as a small use for a nuclear weapon. And I think by the more we can educate and get the stories out there, the more that they will start to understand why. Because we're not the only ones that have it. And if we have a little bit and the others keep having it, I don't, I don't see how that we can call that being our defense strategy. It just opens it up for somebody to use it, and it only takes one person to do it once. And so many lives will be changed forever. Um, and even if it didn't happen like to the United States and it was somewhere else, I always like to use this example of if Pakistan and India used their nuclear weapons against each other, that so much smoke would go in the stratosphere that it would block 7 to 10% of the Earth's sunlight around the world. It would affect everyone. And I think the more that they understand that, then the more they can hear about the facts and about the, the statistics, but they need to hear about what happened first and what can happen to them and how re realistic it is for that kind of a danger. I think sometimes we get desensitized to this kind of information the further you get away. And the less that I see of them speaking to actual Hiroshima or Nagasaki survivors or um, bringing them out when they're discussing this because it is so important to have that peace. And I think that's what can help the future voters is to really understand that better. Great. I think that your message, your mother's message, and her story is so incredibly powerful here. I just want to give you a moment to sort of share whatever it is that you think that people need to hear in this moment, that that our listeners need to take away from your mother's story and about, you know, is there hope? Is this something that together all of us can work and do better on to make the world safer from these weapons? Do you think that, that your mother's story can, can give us any insight into that question that we all here work at? I believe that it can. And I think what I really wanted to show through writing my book, through talking about her story, is that the children in Japan like my mom. They love their family. They love their friends. They worry about what might happen to them. And they wished for peace. Everything that the allied children were also feeling. And so to me, 
the more that we can understand that, the more that we can realize that the ones, as I mentioned before, that we think are our enemy are, are just like ourselves. They all have families. They all love their families. Um, and, and we think more about the people. And I think once we start doing that, there is hope to then start voting in a way that they prevent having a, you know, a low-yield nuclear weapon. We really need to get that human connection back. I mean, you know, time can pass. Technology will change, but the humans always need connection in some way, shape, or form. And we all have hearts, and we all have emotions, and we all care for something. And I think if then we can take these stories and replace it with what we really care for, then I have a lot of faith in our young voters that they can turn things around for us and make it a safer world for my child, for my child's child someday as well. Thank you so much, Kathleen. This was this was incredible experience for us here. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to our listeners today. It's it's really special. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for this powerful episode. You can find out more about Kathleen's work on our website www.kathleenburkenshaw, that's B-U-R-K-I-N-S-H-A-W.com, or you can find her book, The Last Cherry Blossom, however you'd like to get your books these days. You can also check out the UN's Office for Nuclear Disarmament Affairs website, which has made her book an official resource for teachers and students. People can also get in touch with her on Instagram, at Kathleen Birkenshaw, or on Twitter, which is at KL Birkinshaw and the number one. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Nuclear Wilson and learn more about our work at www.armscontrolcenter.org. On Twitter and Instagram at Nukes of Hazard, that's at Nukes underscore of underscore Hazard. Thank you so much for joining us.